Erickson and his mom and dad, and let's see, he's got Sibs. Okay, there, Brea's around here somewhere, I assume. There she is over there. They don't want to be up and, there. Well, you know, you could come on up here and be supportive. They would be supportive. Yeah, that's what we like to hear. All right, very good. Okay, very good. Now, Will and I had a conversation the other day and uh, about baptism, and I asked him, Bill, uh, Will, why do you want to be baptized? And he said, so I can have smooth skin. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. But I have gotten that answer before. But in his case, he did not say that. His answer is, I asked him this morning, do you want to say this out loud or do you want me to tell the story? And he said, why don't you tell it? And I was like, okay, that's fine. So his answers were, first of all, he wanted to draw closer to God, which that's very good. Second of all, he wanted to show that he was following Jesus. That's very, very, very good. And third of all, he wanted to basically remember that he's having his sins washed away. Is that a pretty good answer? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I agree with you very much. So that's what Will said, and I, I would hope that all of us could say something along those lines as to why anybody would get baptized. So let's come down in here. You're going to be the swimmer, and I stay dry. Okay? Very good. Very good. Perfect. And on your profession of faith, if you will grab those right there, that'll be perfect. Ready? Very good. On profession of faith that you wanted Jesus to wash your sins, draw closer to you, and you want to follow him, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Very good. All right, bud. Good job. Somebody have a towel for this poor guy? All right, perfect. Air dry. Air dry. Air dry. Put him on a motorcycle. Good. All right, you guys, if you want to go down, you may, or if you want to stay up for the Clarks here. Okay. Why don't, why don't you guys up. stay up? Yep. Come on, Clarks. And your friends and family, come on up. Come on, everybody. <laughs> come on, everybody. You've done this before, haven't you? Yeah. Summit's used to this drill. I'm not as nice as Pastor Mark. You guys want to? Come I told over him yes here. to say it. Oops, sorry. <laughs> so, why do you want to be baptized? Do you remember? Well, you want to come over here? Yeah. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus, and I want to walk in the And I want to get in the church on time. That's what he told me. Three reasons: he loves Jesus. He wants to wash his way of sins. Thanks for teaching that. Yep. That comes from you. Yeah, good. And the, uh, tell them where they learn this. Yeah, so in the affirmation class that we have for our students to help our children to learn what are we doing and why do we do what we do when we have communion, when we have baptism and so forth, and that was part of what they learned. Good. Yeah, and the third reason was he wants to sit in the church hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> and yesterday the hot tub wasn't working. And so uh, Ben came to fix it. Yeah. And I told Ben, I said, it's your son. You can leave a cold if you want. <laughs> Very good. You ready to be baptized? All right. Is it warm or cold? Cold? It's not cold. <laughs> what are you talking about? I loved our conversation. And I love your love for the Lord. And based on your profession of faith in Jesus and your desire to be baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're baptized with Him, dead to sin, alive in Christ. There you go. Come on. All survivors. That was good. We had no drownings today. That's no awesome. drownings today. Okay, why don't we bring these two guys right here in the middle. Families, come on up here. If there's any elders close by, come on up and let's uh, lay hands and pray for these people. Great. Oh, a whole pretty exciting, room isn't full it? of elders. That's awesome. <laughs> a couple of the elders want to pray, and then Jim, why don't you close it? All right. Father, we're grateful to you today for your love for us that washes away our sins. Mm -hmm. And we thank you for these two that have uh, made that commitment today in their lives. And I pray that you would uh, bless their little lives as yes. they grow older and continue to understand what it means to walk with you. And we'll give you praise for that. In your name we pray. Mm -hmm. Jesus, just thank you for your presence as always. Lord, thank you for taking these, these souls and this, uh, just the family commitment to raising these children in Christ mm -hmm. as well as uh, what we learn from them as well. Lord, we thank you ahead of time for the gifts that you're going to place on them, their families, and this church body. And uh, again, we thank you ahead of time and uh, we praise your name this morning. Father, we know that uh, there's rejoicing in heaven. When people turn to you, and Lord, we do pray for these uh, young men. Right now, there's a big party going on, and we can't wait to be a part of that one day. Thank you for their commitment to you, for the work that you've done in their families, in their lives, personally, so that they would turn to you and, and exercise this faith. But thank you for their parents and their siblings who have been on the journey with them, and mm -hmm. supported them along the way, and have loved them. And uh, be gracious to them, be kind, and I love this part of the journey when they're learning all about you. Mm -hmm. And so teach them, teach them regularly. Just be mindful of their spirituality as you are with ours. And uh, thanks for glorifying us and rejoicing over what's happening today. We are very grateful because we know you are glorified. In your son's name we pray and we praise you. Amen. 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 Give these guys a big yeah. hand. All right, as Jim prepares, because Jim is going to come and speak to us first today, um, just so you're aware of some things. First of all, maybe not all of you have heard about the Hindorf family, who their little Dustin has actually had some surgery this last week and is now going to be in a wheelchair for quite a while. They found, do you have any more details on the cyst in the bone? Can you give me any? Oh, good. That's good. It's benign. Uh huh. Yeah. So you couldn't hear that. The mule train or the meal train? <laughs> no, I'm only messing with you. Know, so we'll we'll have meals for their family because that's obviously going to be a tough time, and he can put no weight on it and so forth till he. But he literally broke the top of the ball right off of his femur in that little part on the bone or so. Big deal for that family. Yeah. Also, those of you who know the Robertses, Tim and Janet, uh, Janet's got some internal bleeding going on that they can't find. 
They're doing two scopes in both ends today to try to see if they can go in and find, but she's, she's been bleeding for a day and a half, so uh, we'll want to pray for them. So why don't we just take a few moments and pray for these as well as others. Lord, we uh, present ourselves to you today as a family, as a church. There's some people that this might be their very first time, and uh, they would probably want to join in with us to say we want to support and be a part of, of the uh, prayer to you, the request. We request on both of these in- individuals for healing, of course. That's our primary ask. And at the same time, we ask that uh, their, the effect of this entire event will help them in their faith. Dustin's young, but uh, also impressionable right now in his perception of you. And Janet has walked with you faithfully and has been through more stuff in her life than most small towns have been through together. And so we ask for a growth in faith and trust and the ability to uh, lean into you and to be able to share that with others because that's why we experience things so that when we get comfort from you, we share the comfort with each other. And so we pray for these individuals, pray that you would show them grace, mercy, courage, love, and for their families who are a part of the process, and us as we participate in that journey. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jim has been good. He takes off every now and then. You, get, you realize that? He leaves and he goes places. And what he tells us that he does is he either goes to Africa or he goes to Nepal or India or different places. And he does some mission work. And so I thought it would be great for us all to learn a little bit more about this as part of our global outreach as we are part of our pastor's journey to encourage others. And so Jim's going to tell us about Eagle Projects. Go. Excellent. When I was uh, finishing my doctorate about uh, 20 years ago, um, a friend of mine who had started a mission, Phil Eister, uh, flew down to Dallas to meet with me and said, I need help. Will you help me? And I said, sure, what's going on? And he said, well, I, uh, he loves to share the gospel. He's, he's happiest when he's out in the field somewhere uh, in third world countries, sharing the gospel, having rocks thrown at him, things like that. Um, and he said, we have several, I've done this long enough now that I have a bunch of pastors in these countries that don't have any theological grounding and there's no education for them. Will you come help me with that? So I said, sure. And uh, some of you have heard the story. So when I, finished my, uh, when I finished my doctorate, I had finished a master's and a doctorate, and I didn't pay a penny for it. It was paid for by donors. A bunch of good friends got together and paid for all my education. And so uh, in return for that, I told the Lord, I would love the opportunity. Nancy and I had been missionaries in Germany for several years. We came back to seminary. I would love the opportunity to teach cross-culturally and to go where they can't afford for me to come. And so by his grace, uh, I've been doing that for almost 20 years, and I've been on the board of this mission. And so I want to just show you what we do, where we go. Small mission, Eagle Projects International. You've not heard of it before because they're very tiny. There's only two full-time people and nine board members. And uh, they're out of Maine. That's why I travel to Maine a couple times a year for board meetings. So who is EPI, first of all? Mission started over 25 years ago. We're probably getting closer to 30 years now. I don't know the exact date. We reach out to third world countries where the gospel is largely unknown. We specifically target areas where we can't find any evidence of 
much in the way of Christian evangelism. Now, a lot of the work we're doing now, we've been doing it long enough that there is a large Christian presence, but we still seek third world countries where they don't know about the gospel. We focus on three areas as a mission, evangelism, humanitarianism, and theological education. That's my part, theological education. I don't do much with the others, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. So I'm combining evangelistic and humanitarian ministries because they go together. We don't do humanitarianism just for the sake of humanitarianism. We do it as a means of getting into countries that wouldn't necessarily let us in because of our Christian message. So we're currently working with partners in eight countries, and we're, ex- we're expanding that three more this year, so we'll be at 11 by year end. We share Christ in open-air markets. That's been the trademark of our mission from day one. Uh, Phil will go out and to a market somewhere and set up a, a generator and show half the Jesus film, share Christ, see how many people convert, uh, show the other half, and voila, we have a church. <clears throat> and so we plant a church. He's been doing that for a long time. So we have churches all around the world now. We do medical clinics in most of the countries that we're in. When we do medical clinics, <clears throat> excuse me, One of the reasons we do medical clinics is because it helps the local pastors in the area because we come in and care for their people. And in some of the Arab countries that we go into, uh, we've been told that we're the only, the Christians are the only ones that will come in, not just us, but Christians, and we'll serve everybody. We don't care who they are. And so it really opens the door for the local pastors to have effective ministry with the local people. So sometimes we directly share the gospel, and other times the uh, local pastors that we've, that we've trained and built up and gotten to know, they do it, and we aid them by coming alongside and helping them. The, um, we provide funds times of emergency. In fact, uh, you were part of that. I'll show you that in just a minute. So example, they had a big drought in northern Kenya just a couple of years back, and we, we bought in, brought in lots of water and other things. We just showed up with money. We took offerings and brought that cash in. Um, Nepal had the big earthquake three years ago, I think, and uh, you were actually a very big part of the offering. And so I'm going to show you some of the pictures of what it was like. This is a month after the earthquake. No, they haven't made substantial progress. Uh, They're doing everything manually. So whole buildings just collapsed. So you can see, here's a worker right here, and here's one. And they're doing everything manually. Here's another one. They have no heavy equipment like we have in the country. Everything's being fixed manually. This building right here was a five-story building. It just collapsed. And... uh, Right now, today, there's a big hole in the ground right there. It's taken them three years to dig it all out, but I want you to see it just collapsed. Whole buildings just collapsed. They still don't know the death toll because they're still digging through the rubble. They're just happy that they don't have to smell the bodies that are decaying anymore. And um, here you can see this is a very common scene. Guys up on top with jackhammers, and often it's a very common scene. You'll see guys with, with jackhammers, and then you'll see people carrying the debris and rock over to the side, dropping it off, and then there's a long line of women <laughs> with wicker baskets, and they load up the wicker baskets, and they carry it several blocks to get to a truck somewhere to dump it in. That's how they're hauling it all away. So what this is, this is a one of the refugee, kind of the, the refugee-type villages they set up. This is a picture of where some of the money went that we collected. These are uh, 10 by 10 shacks right there. And you can't read it very well, but there's a safe water drink 
if they can come get water. There's a little tiny village right here because all their houses collapsed. The, uh, the earthquake occurred on Saturday morning at 10 minutes to 12. They do church on Saturday morning from 10 to 12. So at 10 minutes to 12, when they're just finishing up their church services all across Kathmandu, this massive earthquake occurred. None of the churches collapsed. I only know of one Christian who died. All their houses were demolished. All of them. Uh, lots and lots of uh, Hindus, their neighbors and friends died. So their basic message has been, we, our God protected us. Where were your gods? It's a great message. So we, uh, we collected $40,000, and this church actually played a large part in that, almost half of that. We hand-carried the money over, and here's some of the things that we did with it. We rebuilt 75 Hindu homes. Uh, we asked the Christians in the area. They wanted the Hindu homes rebuilt first, before their own, because uh, they saw that as an opportunity for Christian witness. We, pl- we built five new churches And they wanted the church buildings built out by the new Hindu homes so that they would have a place to feed them. And so they have had several hundred converts. And in the Bible college where I teach, Nepal Bible College, at NBC, we have 30 new students who have come uh, to know Christ and are now brand new students and learning. So that's just kind of the byproduct of what your uh, your donations. Thank you for for making that happen. Uh, We hand carried the money, which is always a little dicey. Getting past customs, but that's okay. We also do, uh, we also are very active in the uh, slave trade. We rescue children from the slave trade. There's a picture of some of them. Uh, we buy them at about four years old, 160 to 180 bucks, maybe 200 bucks. And uh, the mothers get pregnant and sell their children. It's a revenue generator. It's a year's salary. And so we buy them out of the safe slave trade before they get deployed somewhere around the world. Uh, I'm going to show you a video here of... The uh, some of them singing. When we go to see them, they love to. S- That was just uh, two weeks ago. Here they are praying for me. They're praying for me. Notice how they all put their hands up like this. And they all pray at the same time. I love it. It's great. They wanted to pray for me. They know that uh, when I walk through the gate, uh, it's protected. They know that I'm safe or I wouldn't be allowed in. And so we always bring cookies and things like that. And they love to just hang all over us. And and, uh, the younger children have no idea what they were purchased out of or rescued from. The older children do. Because uh, teenagers were, uh, they were actually engaged and involved in it. We currently have around 550 children in children's homes um, all around Nepal alone. And the commitment that we have is that we raise them from four years old when we purchase them up through university when they transfer to adult life. So we care for them during that whole time. That's part of what we do when we raise our funds and we hand carry it over. All right, theological education. That's the part that I'm involved in. After 25 years, we have hundreds of pastors and leaders all around the world. And uh, we have little colleges that we've set up in various countries. And I go and teach at them. I go, right now I've been teaching on the last couple of years circuit to Mozambique, Africa, and to uh, Kathmandu, Nepal. I've done quite a bit in India as well. We teach them in seminaries, Bible colleges, and pastor's conferences. So when I was in Nepal, I did a class and I did a pastor's conference. On the recent trip, I taught the book of Romans. First time they had heard Romans. Probably half my students were uh, brand new converts. The 
This was three weeks ago. They're just making their way back from break and they're just singing. I had to capture it. The students are coming in one at a time. They're going to fill the room. We could learn a couple of things. Here's the class. Uh, if you look carefully, you'll have to look really hard. It's hard to pick me out. I also did a pastor's conference. It was the largest pastor's conference. Uh, we had a facility about this big, and there were about 400 pastors and leaders that came. They love to sing. Can you tell? The children, the students, and the pastors and leaders. Break time in the conference is just to give them an excuse to sing. In the years that we've been working in Nepal, you know, we're just a quiet mission. I go in every year, teach a class, do a pastor's conference. I've been in Nepal for uh, over a decade now. During the years that we've been in Nepal, we had to stop a couple of years during the, uh, they had kind of some civil war going on, but came back. We've planted about 470 churches in all of the national districts. This is not to boast, but to give you a sense of how God uses you and me. Uh, I've had a hand in equipping about 200 of those pastors, 2 to 250, uh, during that time. And so, just traveling over every year, we make a difference. We make a difference. So, my parting word is thank you. Thank you for your support, your prayers, for making it possible for me to bring the gospel to the nations. Uh, that's what I want you to know. This is what I do. I go teach. All right. Did I turn myself? Oh, yeah, I did. Very good. Um, let's see. Did anybody have, just let's pretend for a minute that this is uh, uh, Iron Hour or a third Bible study. Anybody have any questions for Jim? Yeah. Go. No. We don't have anything in the islands, in the Pacific Islands. Not yet. I'm waiting for God to call me. I think he wants me to plant a church in Barbados or someplace. Yeah, right. <clears throat> yeah. yeah I have Any other there. questions about uh, that process that he goes through? Or, oh, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> there is some in English. They do like to try it in English. Uh, that's not definitely not their first language. They're not very comfortable at it. They often take American songs and, and rewrite them in their language. So I walk in and I know probably a third of the songs. So I sing with them in English. And they're and actually many more of our worship, our current worship tunes are from Australia, which that's Australian instead of English. No, I'm only. <laughs> but one of the things I experienced when we were in Haiti was I heard people practicing some music and I totally recognized it and I went in and they had their computer on, they had YouTube up, they were watching Hillsong do songs and yeah. then what they do is they translate them into Padqua and then they use the same songs that everybody does. It's actually one of the most redemptive things about the internet I've ever seen in my life. So it was very the cool. male The male students at the conference got up there and they did a... The, the, the female students got up and sang from each of their tribes... So they could 
just honor their tribes. Well, then the, the male students didn't want to be outdone, so they got up there and did something. And, uh, and they were dancing and singing. They went and grabbed me out of the audience and pulled me up there. Well, I'm a white guy. Yeah, we know that. I, yeah, I don't do the dance thing. Yeah. So they, they filmed it. And when oh, I got boy. down, I said, I have a couple thoughts. Number one, the girls, they call them girls and boys. The girls are better than the boys when it comes to dancing. And number two, if this appears on Facebook, you're all going to fail. <laughs> <laughs> that is perfect. All right. Well, thanks. That was good and informative for me and all the rest of us. So as a next step, we just want to, I would like to kind of tell you about something a little bit more um, that we are re-enlivening at our church. And that is the uh, mission to Mexico with Casas por Cristo. How many are in here that are going with us this year? Stand up. If you're going with, uh, let's see, Rody's in the back. These guys, these guys, these guys, these guys. Good. Give these guys a big hand. And Stephan and Taylor in the back. Good. We have over 40 going. Right now we have about 43 that are going um, which is a good start back into this. So Casas por Cristo, which means Houses for Christ, has been going on in uh, several different places, but they started 35 years ago in Juarez, Mexico. Uh, Juarez is right across the border from El Paso. El Paso is about 550,000. Juarez, the estimation is about 3.5 million. So there's a lot more people on that side than there are on this side. It's kind of the, uh, they come up hoping to get in. Who knows what all the stories are? It's endless. It's an interesting, very interesting experience to be in Mexico building in the property that used to be the dump and replacing someone's former house, which was basically pallets that have been wired together with maybe some uh, roofing material or tar paper stretched over the top of it. And you look right across the river and up on the hogback in El Paso are $4 million houses. You know, it's a very interesting contrast that you get to experience. And so uh, what we do is we go with Casas por Cristo. Casas has built more than 5,000 houses. They crossed the 5,000 number last year in Juarez. Now, the first question that most of you would ask about going to Juarez, Mexico is, is it safe? That's the first question that most people would ask. The truth is, they have never had one incident, one incident, where they felt like they were threatening postures towards a group. They've never had one even hint of a fact that somebody was going to be grabbed, held for a ransom, and a hostage. That's never happened. They kept building all the way through 12 and 13. Uh, in those two years, Juarez was the murder capital of the world. And yet, nothing ever happened. Now, the next question that you should ask is, why is that? Well, part of it is, I believe, because actually God is, is in charge. If God wanted that to happen, by the way, though, that doesn't mean that we're exempt from any injury or danger as Christians. We should know better than that after 2,000 years of the church history. But... What has happened is that CASAS as an organization started something very early in their process that I think is just brilliant. They partner with church pastors in Mexico. And those pastors are the conduit, the deciding factor people, the way that things happen for them to build the houses that they've built. So here's what happens. 
They have 60 plus pastors involved in the organization and they have meetings twice a year for sure where the majority of them come to be a part of the discussion. And people in El Paso are helping coordinate things and get materials and, and getting teams together. But the pastors who are across the border in Juarez are the connection for the houses to be built. So what happens is they've got a church in a community, wherever that is. People from the community come to and through members of the church to contact and talk to the pastor of that church then that pastor takes their application. They run them through some original grid work to make sure that this is actually a viable house that can be built for this family. They make sure that they have access to property that they actually own. Then they run things through from there as far as prioritization. Then they bring their highest priority families to the table of the discussion with the organization, and as do the other pastors from around the area in Juarez, and they make the final decision as to who gets the houses and when, when they get them in priority. So it's actually a well covered process. It's not like the Americans are making all that decision. They have some influence, but they don't really make most of it at all. And then here's what happens. The churches have their eyes out and are helping protect the building groups while they're in Mexico. So while we were there one year, this has been several years ago, we did this, uh, we built 13 houses from Dillon Community Church in the past. And now we're starting it back up after a nice long gap. But one time when we were there, on a, on a uh, Wednesday night, I remember that it happened, the pastor with several other elders, there was four or five of the elders, came to the church there and eating dinner and so forth. And they said, okay, um, we just have, they quietly came to me and the and the missionary who helps us in in Mexico and said we've had some information we've heard there might be some things going on in the neighborhood so would you guys just stay inside the church tonight don't go outside the church and we'll stay here and they stayed they left in the middle of the night after it was pretty obvious that nothing was going to happen there and that happens on a regular basis where the churches provide a shelter basically, because we're coming in to accomplish ministry on their behalf where they stay connected to the family. And in fact, Casas even does follow-up with families, uh, six-month, one-year, 18-month follow-ups where they go and visit, make sure the house is still working well, how has their connection been, do they have any uh, interaction with people, etc., etc. So there's an ongoing process of staying connected, and that's how it stays safe. And so we'll take a group of people down. It takes about 20 people to build a house. Stefan, can we show a, a picture? So that's a building process. If you look into the back of the neighborhoods, you can see the green roofs. Those are much like Casa's houses, but this is one of the neighborhoods there. And then the concrete foundation has been poured. You can see that. They built the frame for the walls. And then we stand up the walls, then you, you put the roof together. And in four days, we go from nothing to a finished house. It's a pretty amazing deal that that goes on. We'll build two this year. We'll take two teams worth of people to build two houses. We'll get to build close to each other and that will help us share some tools and, and so forth. Then show the finished product because it's actually a pretty cool little house. Look at that. Um, we didn't paint it 
so the painting was done after the, the build team left. But the stucco gets put on, the roof is put on, it's roll roofing that goes over the top. That's a three-room house. It's got two divisions in the middle, it's got doorways between, there's a back door and a front door, and it's got windows around on the outside. And so that's what we'll be building, is two of those for families. And you literally, for that family, you change their lives forever. There's no way, if they worked as hard as they knew how to work, there's no way that they have the capacity to drum up the finances to get those materials and then to actually get the house built. We pay for the house and then we build it. And that's how it goes. Um, it, it's actually a double provision that's going on. Interestingly, Home Depot has, they have that, this three-bedroom house and a two-bedroom house, and they actually have build kits. Home Depot brings the entire house and drops it on the site. And a concrete truck comes to bring well-mixed concrete. We used to mix it by hand, and, and that's always risky with, with rookies. But this is the way that it goes to, to where we have a nice, solid foundation that's as good as you can get on, on a big sand pile, which is what it is in Mexico, especially in Juarez. And then we, we leave them with a really nice house that's got drywall, it's got insulation, it's got electricity. It doesn't have plumbing because there's no infrastructure of sewage or water running through. The, so they bring their own water in. Um, but it's got a number of other things. Now, here's how you can help. There's uh, two things in particular. For, for one thing, you could definitely be a part of helping encourage those who are going. It's $650 for an individual to be a part of buying this house and then making the whole trip, feeding, travel, everything. We drive down. And then that's a possibility is that you could help support sponsor a person, help partially sponsor a person, that's an option. The other thing is we'll have information in the bulletin that we'll start running that is comparable to what we do with VBS where we have, oh, you could bring marshmallows. Well, we're going to have some extra things that we can bring, like ceiling fans are not part of the kit. Curtains are not part of the kit. Um, some yard tools is not part of the kit. So in other words, we'll have some opportunities for you to be involved at that level. So just so you know, I'll give you a little more detail on some things uh, when we get into the end of, of the day here. But I just wanted you to be aware and uh, uh, fulfilled, I guess, in your information as to what we go, how often we'll go about uh, every other year is the plan in the summer for now with big teams. So yeah, I won't take questions now. Okay, come ahead, Miss Cindy. And uh, we're going to go ahead and, and start the next big report. This is actually probably the, the most important report because of changes this year I was able to go with on this trip to Haiti. And um, just some updates because it's been a while since we actually talked about some of the real details of our ongoing partnership with Haitian Christian Ministries. Go, girl. So I think we have a picture of our team. <clears throat> yeah. It's attractive. Put up. Look at that. Yeah. yeah. This was at the end of the week. Um, there was 13 um, members of our team this year. Half of us were from DCC. The other half are from all over the different parts of the United States. So if you went on the Haiti trip this year, um, please stand up and wave your hands. I know there's a couple of people. PJ's Kathy Joe in the back. Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul. Yeah. And if you've ever gone and won a DCC's trip, I know there's a lot of you here. Please stand up. There's a bunch. So... Thank you. 
So we went in early February, and um, we visited Piat, and we, um, we stayed on the grounds in Piat this year, and we treated over 520 patients in four and a half days. So praise the Lord. Um, people always ask me, do you notice any changes? Have there, are they making any progress? You know, it seems like Haiti never gets a break. There's an earthquake, there's a flood, there's a hurricane. Lots of things going on that um, kind of set them back in their progress. But um, this time, Mark took a GoPro, which he had on him every day. And so we have some clips that we're going to share with you. And I will try to fill you in a little bit. The first clip that he's going to show is about progress that we saw going on in Haiti. The first, I think, is um, showing some road construction. Um, We're in the back of the truck. It's dusty, dirty. But there were actually a lot of people working on the road, which was very, very encouraging. They're putting in kind of a gutter system so that the rainwater has somewhere to go and it doesn't make big potholes in the road. Um, And this is an ongoing process Um, in Haiti. The roads are always in terrible condition. No matter how much um, work they do, it seems like the weather always takes its toll. Um, After this clip, I think you'll see some um, pictures of um, the Welcome Home Haiti brick-making system. Um, Steve and Shelley Harry... Shelly's the daughter of Donna McCall, who's part of our DCC family years ago, kind of the instigator, the nurse who got us interested in going to Haiti in the first place. You'll see some men at the brick. Um, it's called um, Dwell Earth is the company that they use, which is another Christian company that they have partnered with. And I just learned this morning, looking on their website, that the founder of that company, he and I actually worked together when we were in college in Estes Park. And I had no idea that he had ties with Haiti until this morning. Um, so it's really a small world when we, when we all reach out and try to do God's work. Um, and then another clip that you will see is um, our visit to the Lori Church, which is the second church that Mono and HCM planted many, many years ago. It used to be just a little um, like pole barn where the church would meet. Now it's a regular church, and this year they've started building a brand new clinic. So hopefully next year when we go next spring, we'll be able to actually work in that. And the um, pit was the pharmacy, and all the pews were where we examined the patients. And it was, it's always a great day. People are always really grateful when we go there. And I think we saw over 100 people that, that afternoon, and then we got to visit the site where the clinic was going in. And then I think the next clip is of um, a new church plant called ODN. And we only had a half day there, but it was probably my most favorite day of the whole trip because it was a totally different experience. I got to work with Dr. Paul. He's awesome. And um, they had, again, just a covered roof with, you know, um, uh, beams holding up the, the roof. And they took quilts and divided the um, the, the um, shelter into exam rooms for us, pulled their... Um, pews in there so we could examine patients. And then the pharmacy, luckily it was a beautiful, beautiful Haitian day, beautiful sunshine. Um, The pharmacy set up under a big tree. 
had a table that they put all their medicines out, and the patients, as they would bring their prescriptions up, would stand and watch the pharmacists and all the helpers do their work. And um, my husband will tell you, he's not a pharmacist. He's a banker, but he knows how to count pills just like he can count money. Um, (laughs) He said it was kind of intimidating at first that all these people were standing and watching. And then we realized they've never never received um, prescriptions before. They've never, some of them had never even seen a doctor before. Paul and I had this one woman who was probably in her 80s. And I said, boy, wouldn't it be great if her wrinkles could talk and tell us about everything she's seen in her lifetime. So it was probably one of our most rewarding days. Unfortunately, we only had a half day there. We had to turn people away. But thanks to this great congregation and their contributions of the hygiene kits, we made sure that the people that did not get to be seen got vitamins and a worm pill and a hygiene kit. So thank you for continuing to do that. We're one of the few churches that still takes that. And I think we gave out over 600 hygiene kits the week that we were there. And the people really, really appreciate it. You know, we we think it's kind of silly, but think if you couldn't, you didn't have a place to go buy a toothbrush or toothpaste or a washcloth or even just soap. The little things that we take for granted, it really is a nice gift for them. And it's an expression for us to say, hey, you know what? God loves you and we do too. So go ahead and roll that, Stefan. And um, I think it'll give you a little taste of what's going on in Haiti and some of the good changes that's going on. So you can see all the piles of sand that they're using to mix in with their concrete. And then they had beautiful rock walls up on the sides so here we're coming out the church is there where we just had the clinic and then so this is actually at Lori where they're building an actual clinic facility and you can see the work is being done these are the bricks that the Harry's team makes here's the foundation and they're running the plumbing and the wire conduits and getting it ready so hopefully by next year or next trip there may be a full clinic completed this is at the brick plant it's way way just off the property of piat so we can walk there from where we were staying So it uses very little cement. They take um, clay earth, mix it with water, compress it, and then it dries in the sun. Oh, you can see the form. Yeah, so it shapes and it drills the two holes out of the center. They employ 25 Haitian men. So it helps provide for their family. Do you fire these in an and oven they also then? provide Bible study and discipleship classes for them. They have to like wipe up with a good and to be cured after seven days. Got it. Okay. So they cure for seven days. Then do you put them in the sun or no? They have to do everything. They can cure outside. They can. Either way, I see. So they never go in a kiln or an oven. No. No, it's just pressed. It's pressed. Got it. The compression. <coughs> Does that work? And you keep it from getting wet. So 3,500 bricks per house. Then when they build the welcome home. 3,500 bricks. 
her house. Nice job. This is a village water system at work in their house to purify. And now they can just drink the water straight and make ice straight and not have to worry about it. So that water system was a donation from DCC. So thank you for... Um, and I know a lot of you have gone to the village water um, filter um, shelter here or the um, house where they put those together. Many small groups from our church have helped put that together. And this was actually one of the bigger um, units that was purchased through DCC, a donation that was made by a generous person in our congregation. So the Harrys have clean water for their staff and for their living situation because they have moved down there permanently and are part of um, the Welcome Home Haiti ministry 24-7 now. Um, like I said, they employ 25 men who they're making a difference in their lives. They're, they have a great job. And they offer um, Bible study and fellowship for these men. And in turn, they go home and they share the word of God with their family and their community. So um, it's making a difference. Um, one day, I think it was a couple days before we got there, they actually hit a record. They made over 1,200 bricks in a day. And that was a record for them. And I think it was a record for the dwell earth people too. I think the average is more like 800. So they were cranking away that day. But they all really enjoy their job. And it's a beautiful product. And it's great to see the Welcome Home Haiti houses being used um, they use those bricks, and they have actually um, gotten their name out into the um, northern part of Haiti, and people are coming to them and saying, hey, can we hire you to make our bricks for our school, for our church, for our hospital? And so hopefully as they grow, um, they'll, they'll make an impact. They'll be able to hire some more people. They're giving people jobs. And, um, you know, preaching the gospel at the same time. So praise God for that. Um, the next clip you're going to see is, I think, of Donna McCall, who a lot of us know and love. Um, she's the nurse who got me interested in this ministry. And um, she's like a big sister to me, more than mom. But she's like a big sister. And um, Mark had an opportunity to interview her and ask her a little bit about um, child sponsorship. I did talk to her yesterday, and she sent me some pictures this week. We got them. So if any of you have not sponsored a child and would like to, there's still about three or 400 kids that do not have a sponsorship out of a school of 1,400. And um, I've got pictures of eight kids that would love to be sponsored. And um, you guys are awesome. There are 110 kids sponsored by DCC members. So thank you. She'll tell you a little bit more about um, what that sponsorship entails. Interesting to meet you here in AD. Yes, I planned it so I would be here when you were here. That's very She nice. was there so while we were there, which is a treat. Um, just enjoying being with my family. That's it. No HCM stuff. No work? That's no work. crazy. No work. Now, what are you doing for HCM, though, in Illinois? Um, I'm still doing the child sponsorship thing. And then Tom and I work really close together, so I'm doing all the data entry stuff and making bank deposits and reconciling all that stuff. So. Hey. 
Now, you mentioned to the child sponsorship. How are you doing? How can the church at DCC help you? Oh, but we're always looking for sponsors. We still have 300 kids that have sponsored. 300 out of how many? 1,400. So that's pretty significant. Right. That's pretty good. But, but you guys, I mean, you are, you sponsor a lot of kids. In that's great. Home, so that's we great. want to keep that up. See, we've got a legacy. That's right. So <laughs> tell us. Well, how much is the sponsorship per month? It's um, $30 a month now. Very good. That, um, that helps provide a uniform, pay for teachers, buy school supplies, uh, feed the kids, give them vitamins, send them to the medical clinic. Spectacular. It's like $10,000 a month to feed 1,400 kids. Wow. Okay. We love you. Thank you. Bon day, being you. So anyway, $30 a month helps provide for their education, their uniform, they get a vitamin, they get one hot meal, it helps pay for their teachers, and am I forgetting anything else? Um, the Piat school kids, you can tell them from the other kids that come and visit the medical clinic, they're happy, they're healthy, they... Um, you know, they're just, they just seem well cared for. And a lot of that is because of people like you and people in our church and around the country who sponsor the kids. And like Donna said, there's 1,400 kids that go to the school, so it's anywhere from um, kindergarten to high school. And their education system is a little bit different than ours. So you may sponsor someone who's 17, but they're only in seventh grade. It's because they're tested and they're moved up as they pass their their um, tests. So it doesn't, you know, it's not like junior, senior, things like that. But um, the kids that um, are finishing high school, I think this year will be the third class that will have completed their high school education. They have a lot more opportunity than kids that have no education. So you can actually tell the difference that a good education is making in children in Haiti. So, And then I think the last clip we have is of Janet Graham, who's a nurse practitioner that went with us. She's from DCC. I don't think she's here today. Um, she's been to Haiti with me a couple of times, and then a couple of times with Dr. Joel from Indiana. And um, she is meeting with her sponsored girl. So when we go, um, we um, hopefully have, we give them the list of the kids that we have gifts for from DCC. And um, those of us who um, have kids and we want to meet with them whenever we go, because that's like the best part of the trip is just meeting them and finding out how they're doing. Um, Janet has had the same student for several years and has watched her grow up. And then um, the gentleman who is the translator um, with Janet, and you'll see some kind of funny things that happen with the translation. Sometimes things get lost in translation. It's really true. But um, we also have you know, some really great translators, and they, they have hearts of gold, and they take really good care of us. This gentleman that's in this picture, he was a teacher at the school for many, many years. His name is Willem Vixamar. He used to teach fifth, fifth or sixth grade. And he is now the mission team coordinator. He's taken the place of what Mono used to do. Mono had a lot of jobs, but he used to meet us at the airport. He would spend every day with us. He would coordinate who our um, 
translators were. And now this gentleman from the school has been given that job. So he was like our little mother hen. He kept us all in order and um, made sure that we were well cared for and that we had everything we needed to do our job during the week. And he was awesome. He did not let us have any downtime, though. He always made sure we hit the ground running in the morning. And, and in the afternoon when we were tired, he still had things that he wanted us to do. One highlight for me this time that was different was going on a prayer walk out into the community of um, the homes, the Welcome Home Hadio homes and then beyond. So um, I can't remember which day it was, maybe Monday afternoon after clinic. We were all hot and sweaty and tired. Willem said, no, I'm not off duty until five. We're going on a prayer walk. So we put our walking shoes on and we went out into the community. And it really was very, very rewarding. And people did not shoo us away. You know, I'm not sure we would be welcomed like we were in Haiti in the United States. People might close their door and shut their curtains. But people in Haiti were like, sure, come in. You know, this is what we want you to pray for us. You know, pray for our crops or pray for our children or pray that we don't have a lot of rain in the spring that you know, makes the, the, um, the mud season worse. Um, so it was really, really rewarding. And it was a fun way for us to see the community beyond where we were working. So let's show Janet's clip. Okay. Yeah. So you're in high school? How much more school do you have? Good. Now, how, how much... She's what grade is she in now? She's like what grade? Second grade. No. no. Oh, no. In college, in high yes. school. Yes. Yeah. Oh, nice. How many more years of high school? Combien de temps tu m'as pour finir encore? Two, two more. Okay. Two more. And then you're going to do when you're done with school. This whole you're going to be you want to be a nurse. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So, maybe I could help you with that. So um. So how cool is that? Her student wants to be a nurse. So um. You know, the, a lot of these kids have dreams to, to keep their education going, and um, we've had several people help pay for educations beyond um, their high school education. Krista Solemn, who a lot of you know, is a nurse that has gone with us on many of these trips. She actually sponsored um, one of the students to go on to nursing school, and she's now working, the student that she sponsored is now working with us when we're in the Piat Clinic. So it's, it's encouraging to see people want to have um, professions where they can use their God-given talents and abilities and give back to the community that, they, that has you know, helped them so much. So um, that's pretty much all I have. Does anybody have any questions for me? Why do we have so many people in the clinic? You know, there, um, there aren't doctors available in hospitals available like we have here. Um, you know, people come. There is a regular clinic on the Piat grounds, and it's run by a Haitian physician. He's there four days a week. He has a pretty established staff. So the people in that village know that it's available to them. But this, for example, this uh, clinic that we ran in Ho Dien, 
Um, they, some of those people had never seen a physician. They'd have to travel miles and miles, and a lot of people don't have cars or they don't have the money to pay for um, a bus ride into the big city. And even if they did, it's very costly. So when we go, we don't charge anything for them. We try to see as many people as we can. Their prescriptions are free. And, um, you know, it's just not available like here. You know, a lot of times we think, oh, if we have a runny nose or a cold, we can just run to Walgreens or City Market or Target and get our prescriptions filled, you know, or just pick up some Tylenol. They don't have that there. So even the tiniest little, you know, bag of pills and vitamins and things like that um, goes a long ways for them, and they're very of that. Great question, by the way. Patty. You know, I don't know yet. Um, Hopefully it'll be February, March, or April. We're kind of trying to rotate teams so not everybody gets stuck in the hot summer months. Last year we went in April. This year we were back in our February rotation. Um, But at the same time, hopefully I will will, um, let you guys know that Pastor Bob who's the pastor of Piat, the Piat Church, and Pastor Jacques, who's the pastor of the Lori Church, are going to be here the end of April for three days. Unfortunately, it's not a Saturday or Sunday, so it's not a weekend, but it'll be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I'm going to try to plug them in to Iron Hour and maybe a potluck dinner for people that... Um, you know, elders and people that have been on previous trips or anybody who's supported the child to come and meet them because Pastor Bob is a really, really neat, dynamic Christian. And he's had some big shoes to fill, but he and Pastor Mono were really, really good friends. And they both had have a great vision for, um, you know, preaching the gospel in Haiti. So hopefully you can come and meet him. He's Very meet good. Now. Let's give Cindy a big hand, please. <laughs> Very good. He's got another question. Yeah, we won't have time. We don't have time for that. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> cool. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Miss Cindy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to uh, do a little bit of the reverse the questions right now is what's going to happen um, because we just have a few more minutes to, to cover some things because you have to ask, this is a small church, right? We have less than 250 members and on any typical Sunday, we usually have less than 350 people that attend. In the summer, it's more than that because of the amphitheater, but you've you got to ask some questions about what we do how we make decisions about that and why we do it. So I think I'm going to ask you some questions, but they're uh, rhetorical, so I'll follow through. Let's look at the first question up there. First of all, why in the world would we feel a responsibility to people who are so far away from us that we're likely never going to have any direct impact on us? And how much of our resources as a small church is actually appropriate and wise to be a part of that question? Now, again, they're rhetorical, so I'm not going to take your answer. I hope you have one, though. But I'm going to just ask you to consider a few things. First of all, why would we do this? Um, Interestingly, there are places in the world where they're very hungry to know. They're very hungry to know. Uh, Stefan, run that quick. I think it's 20 seconds, that video. Uh, watch these people. Simeon Marilyn. 
And Pastor Tim in the back. Now that group of people were, if you know how Haiti and the island is shaped, so, you know, Dominican Republic's on this half, Haiti is on this half. That group of people are from way out on the top corner up on the crab claw in Haiti. They walked six and a half hours, forded 13 rivers just to get to transportation to get to Capetian to meet with the people at that church. And the reason they did is they have a church out in their very remote place. And literally when I saw the pictures of it, you can actually see it on HM's uh, Facebook page and their website. Uh, they have hundreds of people in this church. And they have not had, in the 20-some years, almost 25 years they've been a church, they've had a pastor a grand total. They've had two pastors, and they've had a, a pastor a grand total of a year and a half of that. And so they're trying to be a church. They have no training. They have no idea. They have no genuinely, they don't know how to manage different things. I engaged them because Pastor Bob said, would you, as an American, give them some insight, some wisdom, help them? And of course, like, what am I going to do? Well, I could tell you that story if you're interested as to how I decided what I would do to share with them. But the hunger, if you would have seen the questions as they're asking and seen their faces, and like after I described some things on how to take a passage of the Bible and apply it in their circumstances, literally four or five of them went, oh, it was a physical, visible reaction. And one of them said, how did you decide to read the Bible like that? They had no idea. They did not know. And they were hungry, hungry. Jesus told us to go. Jesus told us to go. Why would we do it? Well, we could simply say we were commanded, but what we could also say is there is no way to calculate the impact of interconnecting with people. And what's a reasonable number and percentage of our budget as a church to be a part of that? I don't know. You could probably make a case for 100%, couldn't you? You could also make a case to say, as we do, that it's in uh, maybe 25% range for us to be a part of outreach. Outside of these walls, we're not just about serving ourselves. Uh, keep processing that question. Let's ask this next set of questions. Who and where among all the bazillion people and the places in the world should we be involved with? And who are the, one, the sent ones, the missionaries, with whom we should partner? How do we make that decision, those decisions? That's a big deal, isn't it? There's probably not a very quick, easy answer to that. But the truth is, as we have started to be about the business of this, we start with things that are grassroots. They're organic. They come up from the inside and go out. Like, Lauren, are you here? Lauren Feblis? Are you back there? Yeah. So Lauren grew up in our church, grew up in this community, uh, got a sense and a calling and an idea, went and spent time in Bangladesh. That was an easy decision for us to be a part of that outreach to that place, to that people group. 
because she came up from the inside out. We have several missionaries like that who started here and uh, went out from here. There's also connections. So Donna McCall was part of our family. She introduced us to what's happening in Haiti. We've been partnering with them for more than a decade, and they're a big part of what we invest in. But it was an internal connection. And that's probably usually the starting place. But we're always about asking these questions. With whom should we partner? How do we make these decisions? What's the kind of work that we're going to do? And that's the next question. Let's ask the next one. Go ahead. What should entail the mission of God to the people of the globe? Is it just the gospel? Are we supposed to just go preach the gospel? Or is it to be a part of relief and education and training and medicine and everything else? Or is it a combination of the two? You're wondering why I'm holding this. It's always, I always do this as a, as a distraction. This is a broom from Haiti. It is my favorite thing that I brought home this year. You can buy all kinds of manufactured trinkets and things to hang on your wall or put in your office. This is my favorite thing. The last time I went, I got a rope made out of split up uh, Walmart bags that I watched the lady making the rope. Next time I want a bucket that they take old cars, they cut the, the sidewalls and everything off the cars, and they literally form them into buckets and weld them up right on the street. That's my next hope. But this was a $3 tool. Now, I would have given her $1,000 if they would have let me, but they, they wouldn't let me do that because it's inappropriate, right, for me to pay that much for a broom in Haiti. But it's made out of sugar cane, and they don't sweep like we sweep. They push. There's, I have actually learned a lot about using a broom watching people in the third world because they're much more adept. They live where they have dirt floors. So the question is, what's the work to get done in missions that actually is Jesus' mission for us? What's the work? Should we go and sweep floors? Should we go and provide medical services? Should we go and train uh, a group of people from a church out in the middle of nowhere who walked in for hours and hours to get some biblical training? Should we go and teach pastors? Should we, what should we do? How much can we do? See, this is a big deal, isn't it? It's a big deal, and it's part of the decisions we have to make. Is there one more question there? I think that there is. So when, during the lifespan of the church, is it appropriate to reach out globally? Should you wait until a certain life, you know, place? Does DCC offer opportunities for involvement that are through a lot of different capacities? Do you have to be a doctor to go with DCC? And these are the kind of questions we have to ask. Part of why we re-enliven the CASAS trip this year is you don't have to be a doctor to be a frontline provider in that circumstance. If you know how to build things, know how to paint, you're qualified and we can take a family for $2,000, which is a little less than one individual going to Haiti. See how we're, we've got to think these things through. Now, the reason I put all these up here is I want you to know that we have to think these through. This isn't just, is there an opportunity? There's a million opportunities. They're endless. We have to make decisions. We have to make decisions about what's sustainable. We have to say, is this good wisdom? Is this good stewardship of what God has given us? And all of our resources, time, energy, dollars, all of that, is it good for that? And how do we make decisions for the next year? We have ended some of our relationships with some missionaries while I've been a pastor here. Why did we do that? 
If you wonder some of those things, I would love to interact with you about that. I'd love to sit down and get a coffee. And perhaps you could consider being a part of the team of people that make those decisions because that's how we do it. Not one of us is smarter than all of us. That's one of the best things Brian Myers ever said. I still use that line. That all of us together, as many of us that have some insight, can make these decisions. It would be the best. If you've had the opportunity to be a part of something missionally that's a specific event or so forth, that qualifies you at a different layer than those who haven't. But if you have never been a part of, but, but it's just part of your heart, then come talk to me. See if you want to be a part of making these kind of decisions. Because this is what we have to do. We have to do this on a regular basis. Let's pray together. And uh, then we're going to take an offering. Lord, we love you. We do uh, remember these things that we highlighted today. This is Mexico. This is uh, Haiti. This is Nepal, Mozambique. Um, Those are specific places with specific people. And there's so many more. And we have a lot of responsibility. We know for sure the generation that is alive right now, we have a responsibility in some way to be a part of the mission to reach to them. Whether they're global that way, or as we will celebrate in the fall, are more on a local basis here. We have a responsibility to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the planet. So give us wisdom, give us insight. Um, Take the fish and bread that we bring to you, multiply it, make it more. Uh, Do your work in our hearts through these events, through our giving, through our part of all of this. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if the ushers would come, we will uh, receive an offering. If you'd like to specify something for one of these trips, one of these scenarios, you could write that on the line down there and we could talk about it later. You could let Jude know specifically what you have in mind. Um, but we'll receive an offering. We're not going to have communion today because we wanted to take this much time to give you that much information, but we are going to gather together for what would be like a love feast uh, next door while that's going on. Go ahead, John, and play that if you can get it. Especially the Thanks, least. Thanks, John. You can pull that back.
So, just so you're aware, we do this twice a year. We'll do another one of these in the fall that will be more focused on local things. We also, in uh, our last one, had some time where uh, we had Ben Foley from Serve Now here. We had a couple of our missionaries from France who have been here to see us within the last six months, which is also helpful. We have a number of things. There's a mission board that's right outside the main office. Go take a look and see what we're involved in. We're involved with Snowboarders for Christ. We're involved with other outreaches, things in Denver, things that are around the world. And we're trying to have that be a part of our ongoing story. So thanks for coming today. I'll pray for the meal, and then you can get up and go across. There's, if you'd like to stay, there's food uh, to be served over on the center tables. It looks like and somebody even put flowers. If there's ever flowers, you know it wasn't me. Okay, just so you know that. Somebody with a beautiful eye for beautiful things, and there's food. So if you're on the CASA's team and here for the meeting today, um, get some food, say some, say some hellos, some greetings to some people, and then head on up to the user room in about 10 minutes so that we can have that meeting. It will not take super long for us today. Thanks for coming. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful. We give ourselves to you. We ask you to bless what you have given to us to affect work for your uh, kingdom here in this church, right here, here in Summit County, in this uh, crazy state and this crazy, amazing country in which we find ourselves and around the world. We want to be a part of your kingdom work. So thank you. We are grateful for the food that we have been given and we receive this today from you as a gift uh, and a blessing to us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You're dismissed. Have a great, wonderful day.